Sorry about that noise. My cat's on the other side of the door. She really also wants to talk about this vaccine news. <laughs> She's excited too. What's her name? It's not Pfizer, is it? Pip. Okay. It's, Pip is short for Pfizer, actually. No. <laughs> I'm not sure if she's excited about the news or she just wants a vaccine like everybody else. <laughs> yeah, she's wondering which priority group she's in. <laughs> Hello, Pulse Check listeners. This is Dan Diamond, and welcome to our special Pulse Check series on the coronavirus outbreak and the Trump administration and perhaps the Biden administration's response. Today, I'm in conversation with my colleagues, Sarah Overmall who covers the pharma industry for Politico's healthcare team. My cat is losing her damn mind right now. And Jeremy Siegel. Dan, Sarah, the doom and gloom duo is back. Who hosts our daily dispatch podcast. <laughs> this time, though, with, with good news. The three of us are looking at the encouraging preliminary results of a coronavirus vaccine and answering some of the biggest questions about what's next. Here's our conversation. So in case someone has been living under a pharmaceutical company-sized rock the past couple <laughs> weeks, um, Dan, can you tell me the good news that was announced on Monday? Well, Jeremy, I think it depends on what you're looking at for that good news, because there was a lot of news announced that seemed good to a lot of people. In the morning on Monday, Joe Biden unveiled his team of coronavirus advisors, and there were very familiar names on that list, doctors like Atul Gawande, the famed writer and surgeon, Rick Bright, who had been a whistleblower under the Trump administration and is joining Biden's team as an advisor, Michael Osterholm, the infectious disease specialist at the University of Minnesota, Lou Borio, who worked as an FDA scientist, the list goes on, but it was a very impressive list of, of names. And for a lot of folks, felt like there was a responsible group finally installed that could start dealing with the coronavirus soon. But the Trump administration also had its share of news. The monoclonal antibody from Eli Lilly got emergency use authorization, which was another step in the panoply of various treatments available to fight COVID-19. And, and the reason I think you're asking is that Pfizer announced that they have a vaccine candidate that appears to be 90% effective in early testing so far. And that's what got so many people so enthused. Yeah, this is something a lot of people are excited about and have a lot of questions about. I mean, I've heard a lot just talking to people. I asked people what they were curious about on Twitter, which I know is totally representative of, of what's on the minds of American people. But <laughs> before we get into the technical stuff about what these vaccine results are and, and what's next here, Sarah... I want to ask about something I've seen come up a lot since this announcement, and that is the timing. I mean, this was announced on Monday, the first day of business after Joe Biden won the presidential election. Did the election influence when Pfizer decided to make this announcement? Yeah, I've seen that question come up, too, and it's going to be um, a difficult one for them to combat because of the timing. Like you said, it just doesn't really look good. But that's also not how data 
and clinical trial results work. So Pfizer last week had a good sense that they were going to be able to do this first data check-in known as an interim analysis. Pfizer doesn't actually know anything about what's going on in its trial until it hits certain milestones. Instead, there's this independent secret little group called a data monitoring committee that is looking at the results come in. And when they hit that milestone, that predetermined milestone, that's when they say to Pfizer, hey, we have news for you. And so Pfizer got that news likely late last week. And then by law, if they have something market moving, they have to share it within a certain amount of days. So that is what happened. So the results are looking really good here, 90% effective. I mean, that number sounds awesome when you hear it. But I feel like I have to ask Sarah, is it real? (laughs) How good should we feel about this number? No, that's a really good question. And again, this is the first data check-in. So what happened here was that they said that they were going to take their first look at how patients were doing with the vaccine when a certain amount of people got sick. When Pfizer designed this trial originally, they were going to do that first check-in when only 32 people were sick. Um, And that's what I mean when I say they raised that bar, which means that they, if they had checked in at 32 people, they could have had news before the election. But that would have been news based on 32 people. And so this 94 number means that we have a bigger group of people to look at. It's making people feel more confident in these results that they put out. But yeah, this is just a suggestion of what's going to happen in the thousands more who are still in this trial, who are still being tracked for the effectiveness. And also, this is only in 94 people just a few weeks after getting the vaccines, getting the the two doses, I should say. Um, So we don't actually know how long that protection lasts. There are still lots of questions. And and Sarah, you've made this point about the 94 confirmed cases of COVID-19. But just to underline the point, there weren't only 94 people in this Pfizer analysis, right? Like they went out and got, I thought, over 40,000 people for their study. Exactly. So um, only 94 people in the trial got sick so far. And when Pfizer originally designed the trial, they said that we're going to check in on the data when a certain amount of people get sick. That might seem like a weird milestone to people outside of um, clinical research. But what they were trying to do there is make sure that there were enough sick people so that they could see whether the vaccine was actually working in the vaccine arm. Because if you think about it, if nobody in the placebo arm gets sick, you have no way of knowing if anybody in the vaccine arm is actually protected. Um, And so that's why they checked in at that time. And that that milestone marker of waiting for 94 people to get sick versus a lower threshold, that's a That's been like the big political battle the past few days, right? Like, didn't the Trump administration expect initially that the milestone, the threshold was going to be lower for Pfizer to move forward? It did. We all did. Um, So when Pfizer originally designed this trial, they said that they would take that first data check when 32 people were sick. That's a really low number. I mean, a few health experts kind of raised their eyebrows at that anyway, but it was understandable in the heat of this pandemic that we want answers quickly. And so had they checked in at 32 people like they originally planned, we very likely would have had some data before election day. But they decided at some point last month, and they didn't tell anyone publicly about this. They had conversations with FDA last month. Um, They said that these conversations were about the fact that they were expanding their trials, they were adding new people, but they decided to move that bar up to 62 sick people. And then by the time they checked in at 62, there were actually 94 sick people. So what that did was move their timeline back, essentially 
past November 3rd. And that's where people are angry. They think that Pfizer intentionally did that. The problem there is that there's it's it's twofold. This higher number having 94 sick people, it makes people more confident. I mean, that's much better to look at that than 32. 32 is, again, just a really small number. It's it's a lot to count on with that. But again, they did, they did move that back and they didn't tell people publicly that that's what they were doing. So that news on Monday was a surprise in multiple ways. Yes, this vaccine is very effective. And whoa, you guys kind of waited for a minute. Dan, I I know this is like a really tough question to answer, but do you think if this had been released before the election, it could have had a significant impact on the results? I have some sympathy for the Trump administration and that they were damned if they did, damned if they didn't. If they rushed before the election, that would raise all kinds of concerns about the quality of the vaccine, about whether it was politically motivated. If they didn't rush, they're the government in the middle of a pandemic that didn't do everything they could. So I I think it was a bit of a tricky box. And the best thing that the administration and the scientific community could do would be to leave all the politics out of it to begin with. If President Trump hadn't made the promises he did, if he hadn't made the coronavirus all about himself, back in the spring, doing press conferences, embracing questions that probably should have gone to Dr. Fauci or Dr. Burks on stage, then maybe we're in a different situation altogether, Jeremy. And a vaccine that comes out before the election doesn't feel like it has the fingerprints of the Trump administration, rightly or wrongly. So back to the science and not the politics. I know one of the big concerns with a vaccine is the possibility of side effects. Sarah, in these trials, have we seen any? We have not seen any serious side effects so far. And that's one of the most promising things that's come out of this, because again, it's still early days and um, Pfizer's not allowed to file anything with FDA until it's tracked at least half of its patients for two months. And that's when we're really going to see sort of somewhat longer term answers about this. But it's really heartening that they said that there's no serious side effects in placebo or in the vaccine arm. And so the Monday news is is much better than really anyone could have expected, not just because of the safety thing, but it's been a grave concern for months, really for this entire pandemic, that the first vaccine would be just good enough, like just acceptable, and that people wouldn't want to take it or that they'd wait around for another one, that this one could be more than 90% effective, kind of soothes a few of those fears. This is just really promising, especially considering that there's still more vaccines coming from other manufacturers as well. What are the next steps here before it's like officially this is the coronavirus vaccine? Like when when will we know that the U.S. is going to start producing and distributing this for sure? And, and what needs to happen before then? So a few things. It's already being manufactured on a very wide scale. Uh, the U.S. government and the pharmaceutical companies themselves have been pouring millions into boosting manufacturing with the expectation that if something does work, they don't want lag time. They want to be able to get that out as fast as possible. So actually Pfizer is predicting that they're going to be able to give the United States government 100 million doses by March. Um, And then they are going to distribute more worldwide, but they haven't quite decided yet how that's going to be allotted. So there's that aspect of it. But in terms of approval, in terms of widespread use, 
The next thing that we're all looking at is Pfizer filing for emergency use authorization with FDA. And that's the one where they have to have at least half of their patients followed for two months. And they have to file with them and say, this is the safety profile in 15,000 people. And here's how many of those people got sick. So for people saying, you know, am I going to get a vaccine based on what happened in 94 people? No, this news on Monday just said that what happened in those 94 people is likely to happen in the larger group. But Pfizer's not going to file until they have data for thousands of people. And then that emergency use authorization gets the ball rolling for giving it to really high need people, people like healthcare workers, people like um, the elderly, but then they will eventually file for full approval. Do we know when that could happen? Like when they could have all the data necessary to get the emergency use? Pfizer has been saying that they could get that third week of November, which is right around the corner. Oh, that's um, soon, yeah. <laughs> that's like next week. Um, or by late November is what they're saying. And so the reason for that, again, is that they started dosing a bunch of people this fall and they needed to track all of them for two months, not just on that first dose, but on that second dose uh, to see if there are any bad side effects, if the uh, antibodies start to go down, if the protection level starts to wane, all this important information. And so they're planning to file with the FDA this month. And then FDA is going to convene that advisory committee that we've talked about before, that group of experts where anyone from the public can tune in and see what they're talking about. They'll vote on it. FDA will take that into consideration. And I am sure that FDA is waiting to, to convene that at a moment's notice. I don't think there's going to be any delay once Pfizer is ready to file. All right. We're going to take a quick break here and we'll be back in just a minute after a message from our sponsor. If this all works out, if it gets the emergency use authorization, what's the timeline like after that? Like, Sarah, who would get it first? Who would get it second? Who would get it third? And and how does all of that happen? The timeline for, for broad access for your average American to get it doesn't actually really change right now. You should expect if you are not someone working in a high exposure job or someone with um, a medical vulnerability to it, you should still expect that next summer is probably when you're going to get a shot. Um, and by that point, there's probably going to be several more besides the Pfizer one. But what's going to happen first is that there have already been talks from the National Academies of Science, from CDC, uh, from states about how to prioritize certain people to get the vaccine based on their population, based on expectations for what the virus is going to do over the next months and year, and who who needs it in order to control spread and who needs it in order to curb mortality. So that's going to be the first priority group is going to be healthcare workers. It's going to be elderly people with medical vulnerabilities and it's going to be certain other people who have um, certain illnesses. But that, again, is going to depend on how many people vaccine makers actually use in their clinical trials to get that data. So Pfizer being the first one, they have been studying it in older people. They've also just started studying it in people who are as young as 12. But if you don't have that data, it's really hard to say, okay, now we're going to give this to children. Um, so it's going to depend a lot on what vaccine makers do to gather that research. But yeah, it's going to start going down the line. Second priority group is going to be people like teachers, first responders, um, people who work in the food chain, grocery stores, meat packers, things like that. You and I are probably going to be the fourth priority group, and we're not going to be getting something until summertime. When it comes down to it, how stoked 
should we be about this? Like, Dan, looking at, say, July of next year, when it sounds like, you know, you, Sarah, and I could be getting this vaccine if it all works out, am I looking at a normal life where, like, I'm going to the grocery, I'm not wearing a mask, I'm I'm living life like I was two years ago? <laughs> you called us the, what, gloom and doom duo? I, I think... <laughs> Anthony Fauci is famously a pessimist, and some of that pessimism has infected me covering the coronavirus. I, I think the enthusiasm that we saw on mass the past few days where stock shares of Zoom fell, and you, and you, me, and Sarah, we're all connecting over Zoom right now. Like This is our reality these days to live in a world where we have to rely on a technology like Zoom, and stock shares for entertainment companies and hotel companies rose because people started to see the light at the end of the tunnel. I, I just can't quite get there, Jeremy. I, I think there are a lot of practical challenges that will make this a longer slog than people realize. ProPublica, I thought, had a great story this week about all the ways we're not prepared to roll out the Pfizer vaccine. This is a vaccine that needs to be stored at ultra-cold temperatures, I believe about negative 100 degrees Fahrenheit. It might be sent in big box doses. There aren't a lot of freezers in some of these states to house the vaccine, and especially in a rural state that might be seeing a massive outbreak, North Dakota, South Dakota, just getting the Pfizer vaccine stored, distributed, that's a completely different challenge that it doesn't seem like we're ready to do yet. Will we be ready by next year? Quite possibly. But if there's one lesson from 2020, it's to prepare for the worst and then be pleasantly surprised, not the other way around. I'm going to ask you the question, Dan, that my mom's going to want me to ask you. <laughs> um, we've talked on this show about how I have a wedding planned for next year. It's, it's supposed to be in September of uh, 2021. Is my mom going to get all the guests that she wants to be at that wedding? Is it going to be safe? <laughs> You know, I, I wish for nothing but the happy, <laughs> happiest day for you and your partner. Um, I'm a reporter, not a wedding planner or a psychic. <laughs> but it, it seems to me, Jeremy, that the best way to approach 2021 based on what we know is continue to expect disruption and scale down your plans, but have that escape hatch or that, that second option where if things look better than perhaps they seem right now, you're able to scale up. So maybe invite a smaller group to the wedding with that bonus guest list uh, just a little bit longer than in, in normal wedding years when there are all those people you're never quite sure if they should be at the wedding or not. Uh, <laughs> this year, maybe that list is a little bit longer. Yeah. But if, if things are looking good in, in March, April, May, um, as someone who went through a wedding only a couple of years ago, I, I feel like you still would have a window to... Uh, to get people to your happy day. Yeah. At the end of the day, we still don't know if this is going to be like a polio vaccine and it's going to help eradicate it on, on one go, or it's going to be like a flu vaccine and become sort of a staple, a seasonal staple in our lives. We just don't know yet. Mm, that's interesting. I mean, to stick with some of the doom and gloom, Sarah, like I feel like a lot of people are feeling really good about this right now. And, you know, we're even talking about it. Like, what are the next steps? What's next year going to look like because of this? But like, are there any big things that could happen over the next couple of weeks or the next few few months that just like totally changes the way 
we talk about this and, and ruins the good news? Well, what could happen is that as Pfizer takes a bigger look at its thousands of people that are in its trial right now, which is still going on, they could find some sort of serious side effect that wasn't seen in this first small set of people. They could find that it actually isn't that effective on a broader scale. Although this 90% effectiveness number, this is a lot more than we expected. Um, and so even if it is less effective, even if it's just 70% effective, it's still a higher bar than what we expected out of the first few shots. Um, other things that could happen is that other vaccine manufacturers could and will be coming out with their own data over um, the next weeks and months. We're expecting data from Moderna at any minute now. Uh, they have a totally new technology that they're working on with NIH. Uh, Johnson & Johnson is developing a single-dose vaccine for a lot of reasons that is preferable for public health experts. It's like Dan was saying with just these logistical nightmares of getting something out. A single-dose vaccine is easier to get to people. It's also easier to just have this adherence level, to, to, to give one shot to someone. If you think about... Um, giving that Pfizer shot to people, what if they don't come back for their booster? What if you can't track them? What if they try to get a different vaccine instead of their booster? So there are a lot of logistical nightmares that can happen with just getting these vaccines to people that will in turn make them less effective as well. Dan, we've talked a lot on this show over the past week about President Trump refusing to concede the election despite Biden's clear victory, how that's leading to a rocky transition and probably some turbulence at the federal level over the next couple months. Could any of that affect things like the production and distribution and emergency use authorization for the vaccine? In the short term, I don't think that has an impact. The people making decisions are career officials for the most part. And HHS Secretary Alex Azar seems to be laser focused on Operation Warp Speed on the Trump administration efforts to fight COVID-19, regardless of what's happening with the election. If we are a month out and still fighting over who's going to be the next president, then yeah, I, I might start getting concerned just because there's going to be probably a larger crisis ripping the government. And the more time spent addressing that crisis and who's our legitimate president and leader, the less time will be available, the less focus on how to fight COVID-19 and to make some of the big decisions about how to move forward with distributing a vaccine. Yeah, I would say that I don't think that um, this political context right now impacts the vaccine itself. And it's worth noting that Pfizer has kind of gone its own way in terms of its research and development, but also its distribution plans. It's not working as closely with the government on distribution as other vaccine manufacturers are working with them. I'd say the biggest risk right now is public confidence in the vaccine and the communication that one administration versus another or, or dueling administrations could have on that confidence, which is already really wavering because we have, you know, this land speed record for vaccines and in a very heated political environment. So I think that's the biggest damage that could be done. All right, that is our show for this week. I'm Dan Diamond, and my thanks to my colleagues Jeremy Siegel, Sarah Overmall for joining me, Sarah Overmall's cat for chipping in too. Jenny Ament is our senior producer, and Irene Noguchi is our executive producer. You can stay up on the latest around the pandemic by signing up for Politico Pulse, which I co-author with Adam Kankerin every morning, and our new Global Pulse newsletter, which is written by Carmen Pond. You can check out our episode notes 
for links to both. And you can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player. Just go to the one that you're in right now, click subscribe, or leave a rating and review. That can help new listeners discover the show. Thanks so much for listening. Please continue to stay safe. And we'll be back again with you next week.